So great to see so many of you guys, of you all here today. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. We use, we use that each and every Sunday. And open it up to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33 is where we're working from today, which in Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so it's towards the beginning. Um, or uh, if you have your phone with you, your smartphone, not a flip phone, a flip phone can't do this, you can go to Google and type in Exodus 33. And whatever Exodus pulls up for you is going to be very sufficient for our time together. All right, so Exodus 33. And if you're looking at your phone, we just assume you're reading the Bible. That's just kind of how we roll here. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's start today. I just want to talk about a shared reality that you experienced when you were a child, um, even if you might not remember it, um, really because it's present in the heart of every child. I'm talking like seven, eight years old. Oh, happy Father's Day, everybody. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> talking about children, haven't even acknowledged it's Father's Day. Today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, I know Father's Day can be a time of, of jubilation for some. It can be a time of mourning for others. And, and we uh, really uh, just hope that as we lean into just the concept of fatherhood, we can begin to lean into our own Heavenly Father uh, this Father's Day as well. Um, if you have a father, um, uh, one of the great ways you can bless them is by pointing to the characteristics that our Heavenly Father has that you see in them as well. Um, that's always a great way. Like, if you want to make your dad cry, just get a list together, and then he'll cry. I guarantee it. Um, so, so, yeah, what, we're really going to lean into this, I, I suppose, today. Today we're talking about God's presence the presence of God Almighty, our Father. And so this is a, a great uh, Father's Day that we're, we're going to see the Scripture kind of align with our um, Greco-Roman calendar. Let's, let's call it that way, okay? Uh, but, but yeah, we're, so happy Father's Day. Um, now back to this experience that you had as a kid, okay? That every kid has. Uh, every kid age seven, eight, younger has. Um, if, you, if you ask them to go out in the world on their own, if you say, hey, go on a walk through the neighborhood. Or if you're on a walk with them and, and you say, hey, go into that coffee shop in there and, and here's some money, go buy the macaroons that you, so, uh, that you so treasure and love. Just go on in there, I'll wait outside, go get the macaroons that you love. Do you know what will happen? They'll be hesitant. They will not want to go do it. Their, their anxiety will spike a little bit. And even though they're just 20 feet away, and you would just be 20 feet away from them as they go by those macaroons. I have daughters. This is a real story. Okay, as they go by, they, they will not go. They will not want to go. The notion of children venturing in the world alone, it makes them feel vulnerable. It makes them feel exposed. They feel unprotected. You can even just think of a time when, when you were a kid and you got separated from your parents unexpectedly at the grocery store, right? Same experience happening right there. You see, wherever a young child goes, they ask their parent, please go with me. Go with me. And if you tell them that you're not going with them or that you're staying behind and you press them to go alone, you know what might happen? They may even start to cry. This probably happened to you at some point in your childhood. Because children desire their presence to accompany them in the world. Because children, they intrinsically recognize the security of a parent. They recognize it. There's so much security with a parent. They know that if their parent's present and things were to go wrong or go sideways, that it would fall on their parent, not them. 
Children understand this, okay? They know that they'd be shielded and protected so long as they're with their parent or legal guardian. And last week in Exodus, the Hebrews thought that Moses and God had left them. Dave unpacked that in Exodus chapter 2. They thought that God and Moses had left them, and they contemplated moving forward into the world without them, and they got really anxious, super anxious. Going alone, the thought just panicked them. They were panicked. Moses was just off with God for a really, really long time, and they felt exposed and unprotected. That's what was going on. They longed for God to go before them wherever they went, and so what did they do? They pressured their leader, Aaron, Moses' older brother, to create an idol to embody God's presence. So he made that golden calf to go with them, and they throw a party. Yes, we're going to have God to go with us. We no longer feel insecure and unprotected as we consider moving on again. Moses came down in the middle of this party, and he was enraged. They had already broken the first two of the Ten Commandments, which they had actually already heard. God spoke the Ten Commandments in the audience of all of Israel. It's back in Exodus chapter 20 before they say, whoa, Moses, we can't handle this anymore. You go up and get the rest yourself. So they heard it, and they'd already broken it. And there's discipline, and there's a plague like Dave talked about last week, but there's actually one lasting consequence as well. That's at the very end of chapter 32. That consequence goes like this. It's easy to miss as you read through it. Exodus 32. Verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go lead the people to the place I told you about. And here's that consequence. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. God says, I'm not going with you. I'm going to send my angel before you. And like children, they're scared again. They're scared to go alone. That's why they made that golden calf. They were scared. God says, you know what? I'm not going with you. I'm going to send a stand-in instead, this angel figure. And just like children, when they learn that God's not going to go before them, that's to say that his presence isn't going to be with them. They're, They're vulnerable, exposed, unprotected. And what do they do? They cry. They cry. Chapter 33 Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will will not go up with you, because you're a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned. They didn't put on their jewelry. God's not going to go with them. He lets them know that, and the people, they mourn. They cry. Now, spoiler alert, we're going to go through 33 and 34, and eventually God says that he will go with Israel again, with, with the Hebrews again. So there's a happy ending here. He's going to be present with them. These chapters really unpack a a reversal on this position that God had taken. And so it's actually ripe with discoveries about what God's presence is really all about. 
And we're, I've ordered kind of the sermon today, and we're going to talk about the nature of God's presence that we learned from these two chapters in this reversal, uh, the nature. We're going to talk about uh, what God's presence produces in the world. We see that here, produces, and then we're going to talk about the opportunity that God's presence provides the world. And, and I'll just say this. If, if you're a Christian and you would say, you know what, I don't really long for the presence of God to go with me in life like the Israelites do here, if, if you don't mourn his, aspen, his absence when he's not there, um, which actually God really pulls away from everyone in life, like even the most spiritual of people are going to experience the absence of God in seasons of their life. But, but if mourning that absence and desiring his presence isn't part of your experience, then something's a little off. So something's a bit wrong, and, and I would guess that in life you might feel exposed, vulnerable, anxious, perhaps panicked in several spheres of your life. And, and, and if you're in that camp, that, that's okay. We're not here to judge anybody this morning. We're not going to get everybody to chart their presence with god meter. I don't know how you'd even do that, okay? That's not what we're about, but I hope that these chapters can help all of us develop a desire for God's presence and hopefully mourn the absence of it. That's what these two chapters are really all about, all right? So we're going to unpack the nature, what it, uh, the, the, what it produces, and then the opportunity together this morning. So first, the, the nature of God's presence. Um, the, the passage actually points to so many aspects of the nature of God's presence, what it's like, but the first and foremost one that's most obvious is that it's dangerous, for humans. God's presence is dangerous for humans. It's, it's dangerous. Now, now I know this, <laughs> this isn't much of a selling point for a relationship with God. Hey, do you want a relationship with God? It's dangerous, you know? Like a door-to-door salesman trying to sell like electric fences to single-family homes, you know? It's like, it's not, they're, they're not going to buy that, you know? It's not much of a selling point. <laughs> but the danger of his presence is why God says he's not going to go with Israel. In, in, in verse 5, he, he says, I can't go with you. If I went with you for just a single moment, I would destroy you. I would destroy you. You, you see, God, he's not leaving because he's angry with Israel, although definitely, like we saw in chapter 32, he is angry with Israel. He's angry enough to destroy them and start over with Moses like we, well, like we saw. But that's not the reason why he says he can't go with them. He says he can't go because he would destroy them. So, so, so God leaving in a certain sense here, when we look at it, it's not an act of rage. It's an act of mercy. It's an incredible act of mercy. He's not punishing them. He's trying to preserve them. He's trying to preserve them. God wants his people to live even after they've turned him into a golden cow. So he says, I can't go with you. I can't go with you. And this is a theme that runs from the start of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures. God pulls himself away from people who sin against him. Why? Not because he's giving them the cold shoulder. He's not withdrawing like married couples might do from one another because they're angry at one another. He's doing it so that they might live. Adam and Eve experienced the fullness of God's presence in the garden. The scriptures tell us he walked with them in the cool of the day through the garden. But when they sin and rebel against them, he can no longer be with them without killing them. So he withdraws himself, kicks them out of the garden so that they might live. 
We would expect the opposite from an all-powerful being, wouldn't we? An all-powerful being who has someone rebel against him, it's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to continue to do what I want and go where I want to go. But we see this, it's completely opposite with this Yahweh, his God of the scriptures. He says, you know what, I will limit myself. I'll sacrifice my freedom of movement so that you can live. It's incredibly beautiful. God's presence is dangerous from us, so he takes a step back from us, from Israel here. Now, that's the first part of the nature of God's presence. The second part of the nature of God's presence is that it becomes safe for humans. He becomes safe. Well, safe is probably too strong of a word here. God's presence becomes possible for humans to experience without being destroyed, okay? through covenant. God's presence becomes possible to experience again without dying through covenant, through covenant with him. See, that's what's going on in chapters 33 and 34. We have the recreation of the covenant. So if you back up to Exodus chapter 19, Israel arrived at Mount Sinai and God invited them to enter into a covenant relationship with him on top of the mountain, and when Moses came down with the full details of the covenant to find the Israelites worshiping the calf, what did he do? He took the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that were written on, and he threw them down, and he broke them. The literal uh, Hebrew says he smashed them, smashed them, very strong verb form here. And this actually isn't Moses being a hothead, which is really interesting if you look back at at chapter 32, he says he did this, and right after that, then he went and ground up the, um, the, 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 um, the idol they had made and ground it into powder. Very, that takes time, and then cast it over the water. These are very intentional decisions that Moses is doing in order to teach the, Israel's, the, the Israelites something. And, and so him um, smashing these tablets, what is that all about? Well, these, there are two tablets, not because there was five commandments on one and five on the other, But because when people made agreements and treaties back then, uh, much like we do today, uh, each party kept a copy. Um, And so the Ten Commandments were on both tablets. One was Israelite's copy, the other was God's copy. And so Moses smashes them. He breaks them as a way of saying the covenant is broken. The covenant is null and void. And that's how God was going to go with Israel through the covenant, but it's broken. It's null and void. And so for God's presence to go with Israel, it has to be redone. And so how does that process start? Well, Moses pitches a tent. Strange way to start a process. Verse 7, 33 verse 7. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the Lord. At a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. So anybody actually had access to this, not just Moses. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. This is um, an acknowledgement from the people saying, okay, you know, we had just rebelled against Moses being our leader and chose Aaron and pressured him into kind of continuing on without Moses. Like, if Moses hadn't come down, they probably would have left him, okay? Uh, this is kind of them saying, okay, we, kind of, we respect you again, Moses, as our leader, okay? 
When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would come down and remain at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of the cloud remaining at the entrance of the tent, they would stand up and then bow down and worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, just as man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. So Joshua is, is acting as, as a custodian of this tent of sorts. So, so here we have the creation of this tent of meeting. What is this all about? Is this a prototype for the tabernacle that Moses had just received on top of the mountain? Well, well not exactly. Uh, the, the, the tabernacle, the big tent that, that Moses had just gotten the blueprints to construct is actually supposed to be in the middle of the camp. It was to signify God being with them, but they're no longer under a covenant with God, so this tent of meeting is far outside the camp. The, the Hebrew is, it, it literally says a long way away. It's a long way away. They can see it, but it's a long way away. It's reduced size. Moses just put it up by himself instead of this being this huge construction project that had to get done. It's got a reduced function. You can only talk to God there, whereas the, the tabernacle was to be a place where you could talk with God, but also the, the center of Hebrew sacrifice, festival, worship, all that. So we have this reduced tent off to the side where Moses is trying to plead Israel's case to God. He's going to the tent. He's creating this space to beg God to go with them. He's begging him. He probably did this for a season of time. And we kind of have the back and forth preserved for us here in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You said, I know you by name, and, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he, that's God, replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It's very interesting. Moses replies, If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, Don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth, that is, by God going with Moses. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. We'll we'll, we'll look at what that looks like, God revealing his glory to Moses a bit later. But it's very interesting here how quickly God just says okay. Isn't that interesting? You expect a long back and forth. It's so dramatic, this previous chapter that we read and went through last week. And then Moses just pitches a tent and and asks God to go, and God's like, oh, okay, I'll I'll go now. How interesting. The middleman gets cut out. God said it's okay. Why? Well, the answer is in verse 17. God God said, I'll do this very thing because you have found favor with me. You have found favor with me. I'll do all that you ask because you have found favor with me. I'll recreate the covenant so I can go with you without destroying you. God agrees. Let's do it again. That's what we're going to see happen in chapter 34. Well, why does Moses have this special favor with God then? That's really the question. God says, I'm not going. Moses says, please. 
God says, okay, it's great. My kids wear me down like this all the time, honestly. I'm like, okay, just, okay. You pitch a tent, you keep on asking me over and over and over again. Why does he have this favor? It's not because of his previous life, that's for sure. Moses, just turn the pages back a couple chapters, he's a, a, a fleeing murderer. That's, that's Moses. Moses has favor with God because Moses responded to God's call in his life with obedience. At the, at the burning bush, God called him to himself. Moses approached. God sent him to Pharaoh. Moses went. God called Moses. Moses followed. And now Moses has found favor with God. So when he asks God for things, even his very presence, God says, okay. There's actually this dynamic throughout the, the New Testament Gospels where Jesus is taking the same position with his disciples just because they followed him. If you ask me for stuff, I'll give it to you guys. Just ask it in my name. James, the half-brother of Jesus, will later uh, pen in the New Testament. You don't have things because you don't ask God for things. So God says, okay, but in order for me to go, I'm going to need to recreate the covenant. And so this is, part, this is God's response in 34, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Wordplay, you broke the tablets, you broke the covenant, okay? You broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze on, in the front of the mountain. So we have a recreation of this Mount Sinai event that we saw in Exodus chapter 19. The first time Moses goes up to the mountain because God is going to recreate a covenant with Israel. And then God, when Moses does this, he goes up. God shows up in a big way. We'll look at that in a minute and then he recreates the covenant. Verse 10, and then the Lord responded, look, I'm making a covenant. I will perform wonders in the presence of all your people that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Then we have a big portion of scripture that really mimics the 10 commandments, various commands that correspond to the 10 commandments that God had already given Israel. God remakes his covenant so that God can go with them personally into the land. That's what's happening here. Now, still a problem. Perhaps this is going through your mind. Um, we just saw how easily this covenant can be broken, didn't we? We just saw how easily this covenant become, can become null and void, and we're just going to recreate the same thing again? That doesn't seem like it's going to go well, and it doesn't. In the following pages of the Old Testament, we'll see Israel break the covenant, God withdraw his presence from them, and they're cast out of his, not only his presence, but also out of his benefits that he gave them, the promised land. You ever wonder why God set this up, knowing it was just going to fall by the wayside? It fell by the wayside once before it was really even fully instated, and and it's going to fall by the wayside again. Why didn't God, why did God do this? Why not just show up as Jesus right after Adam and Eve? That'd be great, (laughs) right? You ever wonder that? I wonder that all the time. Well, why did he just come? Well, everything, like, why all the drama? 
Well, everything God does, he, he does to reveal himself in the world. And so all this up and down of the mountain business for, for Moses, I think he goes up and down like, if you want to count it in the book of Exodus, like eight or nine times. He's got he's to be exhausted, you know? Or he's just like super ripped, like hiker, you know, just hiking up and down this mountain over and over and over again. But all, the, all of this is to reveal who God is and how he works. If we want access to God's presence, which we so desperately desire, all of our anxieties out in the world are, are really speak to the absence of God's presence in our lives. We need to enter into a covenant with him. The good news now for the people of God is that we don't enter into this covenant, but a new one. But a new one. This is the author of Hebrews uh, quoting and interpreting what God had said through the prophet Jeremiah, okay, like, I don't know, six or seven hundred years after this, but before Jesus. And then the the author of Hebrews is interpreting uh, those words of Jeremiah for the early church. And Jeremiah's, uh, God is speaking to Jeremiah about the old covenant and what he's going to do next. This is going to be in um, um, Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. Oh, yeah, here it is. That, that was right, yeah. Uh, but Jesus, this is um, the author of Hebrews talking, but Jesus now has obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he's the mediator of a better covenant. He's contrasting Jesus with Moses, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one, meaning if the first covenant was good and perfect, there's no need for a new covenant through Jesus. But finding fault with his people... With them, he says, he, he says to them, see, this is God speaking in Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's a new agreement so that we can be together again. <clears throat> and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. On that day, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's Moses. I showed no concern for them, said says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. They broke the covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, not tablets. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, neighbor, neighbor, and each his brother or sister, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. I'll be present with everybody from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll forgive their wrongdoing. I'll never again remember their sins and their lawless deeds. By saying, and so now the author of Hebrews is talking again. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. This is the new covenant fulfilled in Christ. Here we have a transition. This old covenant is given so that God might display how he works with humanity. That yes, he's still dangerous, but he is approachable through covenant. The old covenant is null and void. No one can keep it, so we're all in trouble. And so he sent Christ Jesus to be that new covenant, which will be one marked by forgiveness of sins so that all can experience the presence of God once again. And what are we supposed to do in order to participate in this one? What's on those tablets? What did God really write on our hearts then? 
Well, well, Jesus said if we wanted admission into the coming kingdom of God, he said, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get in. Those are the conditions of the covenant for humans. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that we've changed from outward actions are the conditions of the covenant for God's people to inward heart attitudes. Radical shift. Radical shift. Inward heart attitudes of repentance, which means we change our mind about sin, which means we acknowledge that God alone is the judge of good and evil, and so we're going to rely upon him to make those judgments and, and listen to his judgments on good and evil. That's repentance. And, and, and then second, belief. We, we trust that God accomplished through the, the, the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We, we trust that, that, that those things happened and that they actually work to bring us into his presence once again. And when, when these two things, repentance and belief, come together, we call it having faith in Jesus. It's a very vague phrase. I have faith in Jesus. But that, that's what it means. We, we, are, we have heart attitudes of repentance and obedience. And when we have faith in Jesus, the spiritual trade happens. Our imperfect covenant-keeping called sin, it's put on him on the cross, and he experiences God's wrath for it. And in return, he attaches to us his perfect covenant-keeping. The attainable goal of this covenant for Israel, it wasn't moved or changed. It's just the person trying to, to score it changed. We no longer have to accomplish it because Christ accomplished it. And by having faith in Christ, we accomplish it through him, not ourselves. All that we're required of are the heart attitudes of repentance and belief, having faith in Jesus. That's Christianity. That's all it is. Now God's presence is accessible through the new covenant of Jesus Christ for all who desire it through those hard attitudes. God's presence is available to everybody to protect them then. God says, yes, my presence will protect you. Enter my covenant. It's yours. It's yours. doesn't matter what you've done because this covenant isn't based on performance. It's based on the present attitude of faith in God. And like the Israelites, God will go with you anywhere you go. Anywhere you go, he's going to go with them on their journey. All right, so that's the nature of God's presence. It's dangerous to humans, but made accessible by covenant. All right, now the products of God's presence. What actually comes out of God's presence? The first one is God's presence always reveals his character, always. Uh, Moses asked God to see his glory, God agrees, but with some conditions here, okay? He says, I'm gonna, he outlines this scenario where I'm gonna hide you in a rock and as I pass, I'm gonna put my hand on you and you can look at my back as I depart um, because presumably if Moses were to see God's face, Moses would die. New covenant hasn't fully been put into effect quite yet. But, but what God says about himself in this moment gives us the beginning of, what, of uh, how we can understand what happens when he shows up 34 verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him, that's Moses, there, and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
God's presence always reveals his character. That is to say, when God shows up, he reveals who he is. If this, is this might seem obvious, but it's not necessarily, because if we were to say it in the negative, we'd say it like this. When God shows up in person, he doesn't remain anonymous. There's, there's no guise, there's no ambiguity, there's no uncertainty as to if he's there or not. In the moment when God shows up, one cannot help but conclude they're in contact with him, for they experience his character. Now, now we might follow up on the back end and try to give ourselves some natural explanations for a supernatural experience of God's presence that we might have experienced, but in the moment, God reveals himself. And God reveals himself through these characteristics to Moses. He's compassion. He's compassionate, meaning he genuinely cares about humans and holds towards them a tender attitude. God is tender when he shows up in your life. He's tender. He's gracious, meaning that he does things for people they don't deserve, and he goes beyond in his gifts of what we might expect from him. He's slow to anger, meaning that his patience with people is, is, is so great. He has so much patience for people, despite unsatisfactory behavior. He's abounding in love, meaning that however fickle we are in our affection and in our devotion to him, he is loyal to the end. He's abounding in truth, meaning that whatever he says is correct and right and can be trusted. When God shows up in worship and in your life, he might say the same things to you, you might feel them, but you leave that experience knowing the creator of the universe who loves humanity was just with me. He was there. It's just part of who he is. When he shows up, he cannot help but reveal who he is. He doesn't wear a mask. The second thing God's presence produces is worship. Worship. Um, When his presence is made manifest, when when he shows up, you don't just feel like you should worship him, like you, you might feel when you come to church on some Sundays, like, I guess everyone is singing, so I should sing too. Uh, you're not inclined to worship, like, oh, wow, I wasn't feeling like worshiping, but I, I guess I could worship now. You're not convinced uh, you should worship now, like, oh, I guess he is pretty great. He is worthy of my worship. No, when you encounter God's presence, you don't have an option. Th- th- that option isn't available to you. You're forced to worship. This happened to Moses, verse 8. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground, and he worshiped. And this is the testimony of every person in Scripture that comes into contact with the presence of God. It forces worship. Why? Because God is great and glorious. There's a category difference between him and us, such that when he shows up, we can't help but recognize this is an incredible being, that is next to me, I I must give him the due respect and honor that he deserves. Now, this didn't happen with Jesus, even though Jesus is fully God, because as Philippians 2 tells us, when Jesus comes to earth, he actually took uh, aside the benefits of his deity, uh, not his deity himself. He's still fully God, but the benefits or, or, or the displays of his deity, which is his mighty power and his glory, Jesus puts those aside. And, and, but some people who do come to, into contact with Jesus do recognize it, and they say, truly, this is the Son of God. John, in, in chapter 1, says, uh, he came and we beheld his glory as the one from, from the Father. Okay, so, so, but, so some people see Jesus' glory, not everybody, but that's just because he put those aside. Now, originally I was going to use the word compelled. You know, when, when God shows up, we're compelled 
to worship. But, but the more and more I think about my own experiences in life, the more and more I read the scriptures and I see these things that happen when God shows up, it seems to me that we're forced to. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, later in that chapter, um, very interestingly, Paul says this. He says, every knee will bow when Jesus shows up again in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Why? Because Jesus' full presence is coming to earth and every knee will bow. When God's presence show up, shows up, people are forced to worship. We can't help but worship God when we come into contact with him. Even if we might not necessarily believe in it all, when he shows up fully, that's what happens. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And, and if you're a Christian, I'm, I'm supposing you've probably felt this at times in your life. I'm, I'm drawing on your history, your experience of this almighty God to supplant the illustration for this product, which is we can't help but worship God. That's why heaven, we just sang about it in the chorus of that first song. Uh, that's why heaven isn't this place where like, oh shoot, we have to sing and worship God. It's like, no, like God's there, so we will be worshiping him in every way, shape, and form. Okay, let's, let's keep moving. God's presence also produces hope. 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 Um, we just sang about that in the first song as well, or in the second song. Now, the, the English language doesn't really, it doesn't serve us very well here when we use the word hope, because hope implies wishful thinking. Like, we, we hope in things that are uncertain. That's how we use the word hope, but the biblical notion of hope couldn't be more different. Um, this happens with a lot of words in the Bible, actually. Like, we use peace to translate shalom, and uh, peace in English just means the absence of conflict. Shalom in the Bible, it really means that the perfect ordering of all society such that every piece weaves and works together to form a beautiful tapestry on display, okay? That's the Hebrew notion of shalom, we say peace, and in our minds we say, okay, no fighting, great. No, it's so much more, it, it, but it's the same with the word hope. Hope is a assured um, um, anticipation of something to come. We will feast in the house of, Z of Zion, we sang. It's an assured anticipation of a coming future reality, and, and it's actually a little bit audacious, it's a little bit audacious. Like, what an audacious claim to, 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 to sing that, that we will sing with God again one day. That's the hope that is given to Christians when God shows up. That's why Christians say really audacious, bold claims about the future, their future reality with God's, because God has showed up in their lives and his presence has given them that assurance. We have this assured anticipation of when not if God will rescue us. Why am I belaboring this point? Because God's presence moves his people from wishful thinking to, uh, to assured anticipation. Wishful thinking, it moves us to real hope. When God shows up, the things that we've read about in the Bible, the things that we think in our minds, they become real to our hearts. And it's beautiful, and it's incredible, and it brings us hope. There's a place in Romans chapter 8 where, where Paul says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does that, what does that mean? Well, it, it's when the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit, that's your inner voice. Your inner voice says, I am a child of God. And then the Holy Spirit, God's presence in your life, harmonizes with that and says, yes, you are. You ever had that experience? 
It's incredible. It's deeply relational. It's very, very relational. Now, um, so how does experience God's presence happen? How does that happen? Well, it's actually quite simple. Well, the theological concepts, like I just went through that whole thing of the nature of God's presence, that's how it works. It's actually quite simple, our part in it. By reading your Bible, by praying, by going to church. Boom, boom, boom. By showing up. You see, after the Israelites broke the covenant and rejected Moses as their leader, he needed hope again. He needed God's presence again. He needed to be assured that God would act on their behalf again. So what did he do? He pitched a tent. He showed up, and he waited for God to show up, and God did. That's our part in participating in God's presence. You don't have to clean yourself up. You just have to show up. You just have to show up. Finally, God's presence produces transformation. Transformation. It's quite a remarkable portion of Scripture here in verse 28, um, 34, 28, where Moses' face just, he comes down off the mountain, and He's up there for 40 days, 40 nights with God. He has this experience probably on the front end of God's glory uh, passing by him. Then he's with God and he's receiving the covenant again, just like he did before. Another 40-day stint on the mountain. And he comes down and his face is radiant. It's shining. And the Israelites freaked out. They're like, what is going on? What is happening here There's lots of speculation about what this actually looked like, but all we can really conclude is that there is this visible light coming from Moses' face, and it freaked people out. You see, when you're around God, he changes you. He transforms you. The the Christian life is all about becoming more like Christ, right? And, And this passage comes alongside the abundance of New Testament passages that say, we don't change ourselves. Instead, we, reply, we rely upon God's presence to change us and transform us. And in the book of Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul starts talking to uh, the, the church in Rome. He really wants them to start living um, righteous lives. And he says the, the gospel is in the first half of the book. And then he transitions and he says, this is what the gospel does. It produces righteous lives. And in this hinge verse where he's transitioning, talking about what the gospel is to what the gospel does, he says this in chapter 12. If you've been in the, in the newcomer class, you've, we, we love to go here. Um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Show up. Your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. He wants them to live righteous lives. What does he say? Try harder? He says, show up so that God's presence might transform you and change you and mold you and grow you to live lives that glorify him and righteousness. Turns out these scriptures tell us we're not only completely dependent upon God for salvation, we're completely dependent upon God for our growth as human beings in the world because it only comes by encountering his transformative presence. Read your Bible, pray, come to church to worship with his people. 
Like I said, while these concepts of how all this works might be difficult to understand, the application is incredibly simple. And if you want to skip all the heady intellectual concepts and just show up, that's great. <laughs> that's fine. That's just fine. All right, so, so that's what God's presence produces for his people. It reveals his character. It forces worship. It gives them hope. It transforms us. Now the opportunity. Only one part, only one part to this piece God's presence among his people provides the opportunity for outsiders to follow him. For outsiders to follow him. You may have noticed that at one point, Moses, we read it, grounded his plea to God to go with them so that others might see. And then God responded, yeah, I'm going to do that so that others might see. Others might know who I am. They might see that I'm real. That they might see that I'm worthwhile. They might see that I'm powerful. They might see that I'm valuable. That ultimately, they might see my glory. God revealing his glory isn't for some petty reason or some vain reason, like he just wants everybody to like give him uh, all this praise. It's actually evangelistic. He reveals his glory to the world that people might come to know him. And how does that happen? Through his presence with his people. Through his presence with his people. This word glory is a really hard word to actually define. We, we sang it, all glory to you, Lord, earlier. It's a really hard word to define because it's a lot more like beauty, <laughs> like the word beauty, and less like the word coffee. Like if someone didn't know what coffee was, you could describe it to them very simply. If someone had never heard of the notion of beauty, uh, it's actually very, very hard to describe something like that to somebody else. And, and glory is kind of like that. It's kind of like that type of word. And, and I could try to give you a couple stammering attempts at explaining what glory is or provide you some examples, but at the end of the day, you know glory when you see it. People know glory when they see it. And so God manifests his people or his presence among his people and incredible things happen that reveal his glory, that reveal him, who he is, his ways, his character, force worship among his people, provide hope for his people, transform his people, all things that are completely unique and incredibly valuable. And, and those looking on, people who aren't Israel or who today wouldn't call themselves a Christian, observe God's glory, which is his presence among his people. It's not them living perfect lives. God's glory is his presence among his people. And they become curious and they say, I'll check that out. I'll try to figure out what this is all about. You see, God revealing his glory is the greatest form of evangelism, of him revealing his name and who he is to the world. Do you know how concerned Moses was about being able to answer the world's questions and arguments against Yahweh? None. None concerned Moses. He's not telling you how to reason through arguments and give people the right answers, not worried about what their questions might be. What is he concerned with so that they can understand and come to know God? Helping God's people experience God's presence that the, that the world might see God's glory. That's what it's all about. Now, I expect that many of us are, are thinking, oh no, I, I can't remember the last time I personally experienced the presence of, of, of God. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian or anything like that. Uh, the pandemic took away the corporate worship service 
for, for most all of us. Um, Dave and I had the, the pleasure of actually producing the worship each and every week, the, the worship service, and so we had the opportunity to worship in person every week, and I don't know what I would have done without those sessions. Uh, thank you to the band to continue showing up through those things. Keeping me spiritually alive and connecting with God in that time. Uh, I mean, it turns out also that being home all day, every day, isn't great for your spiritual life, you know? I thought I would have read so much more of the Bible. Did you guys think that? I did not read very much of the Bible in quarantine. You know, and so this past year and a half is a time where really our patterns for, for stepping out and engaging with the presence of God were disrupted, sidelined. <clears throat> and, and now, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, sure, we, we, we can show up, which is great. It's a great step as well, but I want to suggest that we start actually with where the people started at the beginning in chapter 33. We mourn. We cry. We mourn the state of affairs. We, we mourn the state of our hearts. We, we mourn that God feels distant to us. We acknowledge the distance of God and, and, and we mourn it. When we were first thinking of uh, preaching through the book of Exodus, I was reading through it, and I came to these first verses in chapter 33, and I saw that the people of God were mourning, and, and I just knew, I said, oh man, this is going to get good. Something good is about to happen to the Israelites. Why? Because they recognize and acknowledge their spiritual poverty. That is, they recognize that God was far off, and they mourned it. And how does Jesus start his Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And they were. They were. And we will too, by the grace of God, as we mourn God's absence in our lives. God is absent in all of our lives in many ways. And as we mourn his, his absence, he will show up. He will wrap his arms around us. He will give the, the certainty of the blessed hope of a future life with him to us and transform us now. We will encounter him and his glory will be on display in us that the world might too partake. 